of you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 103. Don't stand up yet, Preston. All right. Um, as they're exiting and you're turning, I, I read a story about a Christian man who heard a message about the end times. And so, because he was scared that it was near, he wanted to get all he could out of the economy before it collapsed. So he took his life savings and he went to the horse track. He wasn't a badness, was he? And he, when he got there, he just watched the first race. And then he watched the second race. And he noticed that before each race, the priest would go down to the Catholic priest would go down to the horses and he would perform a ceremony over a particular horse and then the horse would win the race. And he said, that's odd. So he watched two or three more races and he watched the priest go down, wave his arms, wave his little incense burner, sprinkle some water, say a few words, and he'd watch the race and the horse would win. He watched a couple of more races. The priest did the same thing. He said, okay. He said, I'm ready. So he watched the fifth race and the priest went down to perform his ceremony over this horse. The man rushed to the window, laid his bed out, all of his life savings, came back to watch the race. The horse took off out of the gate, went 50 feet and fell over dead. The man was in shock. He worked his way through the crowd and he said, priest, could I have a few words with you? And the priest said, yes, young man, what is it? He said, well, I watched you before all those other races and you did something to all them horses, some kind of a ceremony you performed over them. And and he said, then I went and watched you do the last race, and that horse went 50 feet and died. And the priest said, you must be a Protestant. The man said, yes, I am. Why do you ask? He said, because it's obvious you don't know the difference between a blessing and the last rites. <laughs> and I told that little tale to say this. If, if a stranger came into our sanctuary this morning or any Sunday morning, night or Wednesday night and they watched you would they be able to tell the difference that you were here blessing the Lord or you were here performing his funeral how would they know right how would they know the difference if they watched your life would you be known as a person who is blessed remember I told you how to describe yourself as one who is highly favored blessed servant and son or servant and daughter of the Most High God, would they watch your life and could they tell that you are a blessed person? When you come to church each Sunday, are you a worshiper or are you an attender? Do you come and worship God or do you just come and attend the service? You see, there's a big difference there, isn't there? Here's what Jesus said about this topic. I've got a verse on the screen if I can get, wow, look at that thing go. <laughs> Did it make it all the way back to the beginning? It did. Here we go. <laughs> Jesus said, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. What does that mean, to worship in spirit? Well, spirit then must be reality. God is spirit, the Bible tells us. So in order for me to worship in spirit, 
my inner man, my spiritual man, must be in line with God. I must be right with Him. I must be in accordance with Him. I must be walking after Him. I must be living in obedience to Him. My spirit in me, worshiping God who is spirit. That is a reality. Now, that comes out of my physical body, my mouth, my hands, my feet, my actions, my words. The inner man lined up with God spiritually comes out of the outer man. Amen? Now, not by motion only. Don't go through the motions of worshiping. God certainly knows the difference. He wants your worship to come from inside your heart, inside out worship. That's what God desires. That's worshiping in spirit. Amen. That's the way that God would have us to worship him. It's similar to love, right? We love people and we love our spouse, our children. And those things come out through feelings and emotions, Love is not a feeling, and love is certainly not just an emotion. The same for worship. Worship is not a feeling, and it's not an emotion, even though those are expressed often in worship. Worship in spirit. Now, it also said in John 4 that Jesus said, God's seeking people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. What does that mean, to worship God in truth? There has to be a context to what I'm worshiping. There has to be an object. There has to be some reality to grab a hold of, not necessarily physically, but mentally to, and spiritually to worship. What do I worship? Well, I worship the revelation of God as He has made Himself known to us in this book. This is God's revelation of Himself to us. What I know about Him is in here. What I hear that He does is in here. What I hear He's going to do is in here. So there has to be some truth to my worship. I worship in spirit, inside out. That comes out of my body. I worship in truth. There is context. There is some reality to the thing that I worship. Worship is based on God's revelation. Not idolatry. We, we talked about this Wednesday night. You and I don't have idols on our mantle or on top of our TV or on our nightstand that we might worship. But here's what we do. We think of God as we want God to be. We make up a God in our mind and then we want to apply it to the Heavenly Father. That, my friend, is idol worship. You making God into an image that's in your mind. You're doing and breaking the second commandment just as if you had a statue of Him and you were worshiping that statue. You're worshiping something in your mind that you've made up that God should be. He's just a loving God, not a judging God. He's not an angry God. He's a patient God. You you know what the Bible says? He's all of those. So you can't... Pick and choose which ones you want to God to be and which ones you don't want Him to be. That is idol worship. Don't worship like that. Worship in truth. This is who God says He is. This is what God says He is and what He has done. So true worship then involves two factors. Understanding who He is and what He's done. 
number one. Number two, understanding who I am and who I am to Him. That is worshiping. I understand God from the revelation that He's given me of Himself. And then I understand who I am in the eyes of God. That causes us to worship, or at least it should cause us to worship. The Bible is clear. God is seeking such people to be His worshipers. Is that you? I would go as far as to say this, that God's seeking people to be in His family who worship Him like that. He will cause you to worship Him like that when you become a member of His family. God's children worship like that in spirit and in truth. Now, we come to Psalm 103, written by King David. All right? David was, as the Bible says, a man after God's heart. He's pursuing it. He's longing for it. He wants this relationship with God. He desires it. He lives for it. He moves for it. He acts towards it. That's what David is. And guess what? David wrote a psalm, 103. And in this psalm, there is no petition of mercy. There are no cries out for God's help. There is simply a whole chapter of just David focusing on God and what he's done and David worshiping God. Amen. Let's read this chapter. Stand with me and we'll read not the whole but part beginning in verse 1. God's great goodness, our great need should bring great worship. Verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems you, your life from the pit. Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Who satisfies your years with good things. So that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts towards the sons of Israel. Verse 8, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He Himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Let's pray. Lord, bless your word this morning in this place. And bless each heart with receiving it. Open our ears and our eyes that we see and hear Jesus this morning. As he pleads with us to follow him and to be saved. I pray that today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. 
The first thing I want you to see out of our text is God is good. He is, has great goodness, all right? David, in our hymn or our psalm, focuses on the many tender mercies of God, right? Focus, 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 right? I got a picture in my office of an eagle head with his eyes staring right ahead at you as you look at the picture. And down below it says, focus. If you chase two rabbits, both will escape. So understand, when we come to God and worshiping God, we focus on God. You know, as a pastor, I do a a marriage counseling. And I've noticed something that uh, when a couple comes to me to be married and we counsel them, uh, they're holding hands when they walk in the office He's bragging about her, how beautiful she is, how kind she is, how, how tender and sweet she is. She's bragging about him, how strong he is and how caring he is and how mighty he is. And I'm just nodding my head, yeah, amen, amen, right? And, and, and they're just doing and awing over each other as we go through this counseling. And then about five years later, they come back for more marriage counseling, okay? And this time they walk in separately. They sit down, and she says, he only thinks about himself. And, she, and, and he says, she's always nagging me. What happened to that couple in that period of time? I'll tell you what happened. They lost focus. They lost focus on each other, and their focus turned inward to themselves. And now they're in trouble because they lost their focus. You know what? The devil does that today. He began that tactic back in the Garden of Eden with Eve and Adam. God said, everything is good. You read it yourself. Creation experience, after each day, God said, it is good. After the sixth day, when He made man, He said, it is very good. Everything was good in the Garden. Everything was beautiful. Everything was right. All their provisions taken care of. They had lack of nothing. And yet God said, don't eat that tree out in the middle. Because if you do, it'll cause you to die. Here comes the devil. Of all the positive things around Adam and Eve, what does he point out? The one thing they can't do. The one negative thing. Eve takes her focus off of all of that and puts it on that tree. And then the devil says, God's mean, isn't he? He's harsh. He's unfair. He's depriving you of life. He knows if you eat that tree, you'll become like him. Knowing good and evil. So what does she do? She falls for it. My friend, if you believe that God is not good and gracious and kind, then you are a setting duck for any temptation that comes your way. He is good. He is gracious. He is long-suffering. He is kind. We just read it. And we read it throughout the Scripture. God has a great goodness about Him. And so, let's talk about some of that goodness. Where does it come from? It comes from His very nature. He is good. Amen? He's kind to us. It points out some things. Verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. A name in the Bible 
refers to the attributes of God. Guess how many names are in the Bible referring to God? Anybody want to take a shot? Come on. 270 descriptive names of God in the Bible. And all of them are for our good. Amen? He is not unfair. He is not depriving us of anything. He is a gracious God. Verses 1-7 through bring that out. He says there in verse 7, I made known my ways to Moses and to the Israelites. Now, why did he say that? Well, because Moses and the Israelites, if you took that Exodus story, that is the greatest story in history of God's grace, God's deliverance, God's provision, and man's forgetting God's benefit. What did they do when they got out into the wilderness? They griped and they complained, just like we do today. God said, I made known to Moses and the people of Israel that I am compassionate, I am gracious, I am slow to anger, and I'm abounding in loving kindness. Now, God's justified in His anger. When we sin and we commit sin, then He becomes angry with us. But yet He is gracious to the fact that He extends mercy to us instead of the penalty. He could squish you for your sin, but yet He sticks out His hand to save you, to heal you, to make you His own. How gracious more can He be than that? I don't see it. His loyal love for us. The word is said. He is a loving God. He is abounding in love. His love is eternal. It also says that He's a compassionate God in verse 13. David pictures a father and his child. Compassion. You dads have compassion on your children, right? You don't bust them every time they mess up or turn the wrong way or do the wrong thing. You have compassion. You discipline, of course, you should, but you don't tear them up every time they make a mistake. You have compassion. That's the way God is with us. He has compassion on us. Amen? God knows that we are made of dust, as He ended there in verse 14. God is also forgiving God. This forgiveness is only found in His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? The sacrifice that Jesus made. How does a holy God accept sinful men like me, like you? How does God do that? How does that work out where a sinless, holy God can have relationship with sinful men? I'll tell you how. His law, His holy law, has to be satisfied. God didn't change in the middle of the stream and sweep your sins under the rug because He likes you. And God didn't change and put your sins in a closet somewhere because you are strong. God said, my holy law must be satisfied. Justice must prevail. And so what did He do? to accept sinful men. He put in a substitute for us. He put in His Son. Praise the Lord. God's goodness is great. Jesus took the penalty you and I deserve. You and I should have been on that cross. But Jesus stepped in 
for man. And now God says, my law has been satisfied. There has been death because of sin. What did he tell Adam and Eve? Don't eat that tree in the middle of the garden, because if you do, you will die. Was it the eating of the tree that caused her to die? Was that a poisonous tree? No. You know what caused her to die? She disobeyed God. She broke his command, don't eat it. And she ate it. She broke the command. Sin came into her life. Now she started to die. She was made eternally to live in the Garden of Eden. But sin came in and she started to die. Amen. You and I are born into this world. And what happens to us? We die. Sin causes death. Romans 6.23 The wages, the payment of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hallelujah. God's goodness is worthy of His praise. Now God's holy law has been satisfied and now God can give mercy to anyone, anyone who goes to the cross. Anyone who runs to that cross for forgiveness can find it in Jesus Christ by God's mercy. He will not pick and choose He does not play favorites. You go to the cross and you'll find forgiveness. Amen? Amen. I found it 34 years old. I found the cross. Oh, I knew all about it before that. I was raised in church. I went to church. I knew all the church stuff. But I did not know Jesus until I was 34 years old. And I surrendered my heart to Him. God, in His mercy, forgave me because Jesus paid Clay's price. And I believe that. And I've accepted that. And now I am forgiven and free because of that. God is sovereign. It says here in our text. And we should take uh, notice of that. Nothing, nothing, nothing can thwart or alter God's plan to bless His children. Nothing can change that, right? Because what He has promised will come to pass. God is good because it is His nature to be good. The second thing I want you to see, God is good and His people will receive His blessings. Look in verse 3. It says, Who pardons all your iniquities. Right? Who heals us. Who pardons us spiritually, emotionally. There's no. It goes on to say in verse 3, Who heals all your diseases. He pardons our sin. He heals our diseases. Spiritual disease, emotional, physical disease. Now, get this straight, church, please. There's no promise of instant healing in that text or anywhere you'll find in the Bible. You become a Christian, all your stuff is healed. No, that's not the way the Bible teaches. Some denominations want to express that. That we are healed because we become a believer. Well, you're healed spiritually. But you still might carry that cancer around with you. You still might carry that bad knee around with you. You still might have problems in your life emotionally, even though you've become a Christian. Right? There's no promise of that uh, healing. There's no miraculous deliverance from all of our problems because we become a Christian. In fact, if you get down to it, the Bible says that people who become Christians now have different kind of problems. Now I am being tempted beyond, and now I have an enemy who is fighting against me. I used to be in Satan's camp, 
Right? There were no enemies. I all of a sudden became a believer and went to God's camp, and now I've got enemies. And they attack every day, every moment. I am oppressed. I am fought against, and God fights for me, and God helps me through that. There is no miraculous healing or deliverance from my problems when I become a believer. Neither David, who wrote this psalm, or anyone else in the Bible ever experienced that. It all became greater Oppression and conflict. Not every physical ailment is healed. And not everyone receives healing. Right? The Bible doesn't teach that, even though some denominations want to call that out. So, there is no such promise in the Bible. God uses physical trials to bring us to a deeper spiritual life. How does that work? You say, well, I'm glad you asked, because if I have trials in my life, physical, family, financial, whatever the case may be, and I've become a believer, guess where I go for help? I go to Him. Guess where I go for support? I go to Him. And in that going to Him, all of a sudden now my spiritual life is growing and deepening as I depend more and more on Him. Amen? God uses physical Problems and trials to increase our spiritual life. Now, the Bible says that sin uh, can cause physical problems and ailments. We all know what uh, drinking can do to a man, right? We know what drug abuse can do to a man. We know what sexual promiscuity can do to a person. It can take them down physically, amen? If you get healed by God and you are forgiven of your sin and then you stop doing those, of course you will get better physically. So there are all kinds of issues dealing with that verse 3 that He heals us from all of our diseases. I just wanted to clear that up for you. Not all of them, not everyone, and not each kind would be healed because you become a believer. God in verse 4 delivers us from death, who redeems your life from the pit. The word pit there means grave. The word sin means death. Like I said, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. To redeem, who redeems your life from the pit. What does that mean? Redeem, to buy back or pay the price of release. To pay the price of release. When you go to the store and you put something on layaway, and then you go back to make that final payment, you redeem that item. You've made the final payment, and they hand it to you. That's called redemption. You've redeemed that. You've paid the payment of release. Jesus paid the payment of release for you and I. He has redeemed us. He's purchased us back out of the world. He has released us from the death uh, grip of sin. The the sting of death is taken away from our life. God delivers us from death. He goes on in verse 5. He wants to give you a good life right now. It says in verse 5, Who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. God gives us material blessings, yes. And He gives us an inner renewal. We have a new nature, a new man coming in. A new spirit when Jesus Christ moves in and saves us. The reference there to the eagle is just this. An eagle can soar above the heavens whether he's old or young. 
Amen? And so for you, whether you are old or young, in Christ you are renewed and you can soar in the heavens. That's what the reference that David gave us is indicating. Now, all these blessings are ours at no cost. Cost you nothing to receive these. Amen? What a great God we have. What a great God. No cost to us, but it cost Him everything. Cost Him His Son's life to give you these blessings. They're important to Him. They should be valuable to you. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever taken time to just sit still and let the enormity of God's blessings overwhelm you like a flood? And you just sit quietly somewhere and you think about all of the good in your life that's come from your Father. I bet none of us have really done that very often. I challenge you. Today, tonight, while you lay on your bed, you lay there and you close your eyes and you think about all the good in your life that's come from God. He gives it to us. He is a good God. He is a great God. Verse 2, David writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Amen? Now, the whole book is about God. I say the whole book. The whole chapter is really focusing on God. Now, David mentions men a couple of times in this, and he talks about God's great goodness, but now he talks about our great need. Amen? Verse 3, who pardons all your iniquities. What is he saying there? I'm a sinner. My need. I need forgiveness. I need something to happen because I'm doomed without it. I need God's forgiveness because I am a sinner. I cannot come to God without confession. God says in order for me to be saved, I must confess to Him what I've done. How many of you have a kid and you say, tell me what you did and don't you lie? And then we don't know if they're lying or not. But when we come to God and He says, tell me what you've done and don't lie, we can't fool Him. Because he already knows. So he expects you to confess to him. When I came to Christ that night in my bedroom at 4 o'clock in the morning, I laid my life out on the floor. Oh, I'd been hiding it. I'd been, I'd been a goody two-shoes in my own eyes. I really wasn't that bad of a person, but I realized at that moment that I was doomed for hell unless something changed in my life. So I laid my life out to God on the floor. And you know what he did? He picked me up and he hugged me and he dusted me off and he put a robe on me and he turned me around and he said, here's the path I want you to walk. Now walk on it. You know, I'd walk on that path, but I'd fall off once in a while. Guess what? He was there to pick me up, dust me off again. Stay on the path, Clay. Stay on the path. And I've been walking that path now for almost 30 years. You see, that's what God wants to do for you. He wants to forgive you. But in order for you to receive that, you've got to confess to Him. He knows what you've done. He's not playing games with you. In order to come to Him, you must confess, God, I'm a sinner, and I need you to save me. It's that simple. It's that easy. The closer we come to the light of Christ, the more we see our sinful heart inside. 
That's why Jeremiah wrote to us, don't trust your heart. You hear people say, trust your heart. Don't you dare trust your heart. Okay? Don't trust your heart. Christ may be living in it, but don't you trust your heart. Why? Because Jeremiah wrote to us, the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? Amen? You trust Christ. You trust Him with your decisions. You go to Him with your needs. You take Him with you everywhere you go. Why? Because you're a sinful man. You need to trust Christ. That's our great need. We also have a need. Come on, screen. We have a need. We're sick. It says in verse 3, He heals all our diseases. He knows that we are frail. He has redeemed our, I'm sorry, He pardons all of our iniquities. He knows we're vulnerable. He knows we're frail. Verse 14, He says, He knows we're made of dust. He knows that no matter how strong and big and and powerful you are, that you could be carrying that cancer gene in your body, and it could take you down in six months to death. God knows that. God knows that you could be big and strong and well-behaved and do, and you could get that virus and it could take you down in six months to death. God knows that. He knows we're vulnerable. He knows that we are frail. He's not playing games with us. He knows that we are needy. Our greatest need is to realize that myself. I can't save myself. You can't save yourself. Only God can save us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He also says here that we are short-lived. Amen? We don't have a long life. Look down in verse 15. We haven't read this yet. Look at it with me. It says, As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more. God says you are like a flower out in the meadow and you're here for a moment and then the wind passes over and you're no more. Amen? You don't have eternity to make an eternal decision. You've got your lifespan to make an eternal decision, a forevermore decision. God knows that we are but dust. Grace is not for the worthy, right? This church, I I, I used to... When I was a teenager and, and, and in my 20s, I'd, I'd drive by a church on Sunday morning and I'd think, you know, there's all them people in there and, and they think they're better than us. But they're really not better than us. They're just different. They're hypocrites or whatever I, I would say about them, right? And, and then when I became a Christian, you couldn't keep me out of this place because this is where I was safe. And this is what I needed. This is where I was growing. This is where I was really loved. Amen? And and, and I realized something. That God's grace is not for those who deserve it. It's not for the worthy in this world that get God's grace. It's for the unworthy. It's for the people that were like me. That didn't deserve His love. Did not deserve His favor. Did not deserve His forgiveness. And yet, he kept his hand out to me all those years of my life until I reached out and took it. God's grace is not for the deserving, it's for the undeserving. Do you see that man? You see that woman today? God's reaching for you, even in this place. Look what it says on the screen. Paul wrote, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, 
But our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. God's great goodness and our great need should cause us to have great worship. Amen? I told you. Do people know that you're worshiping or you're here for a funeral when they walk in this place? Right? I want them to know I'm worshiping. God's not dead. He's surely alive. He's living on the inside, roaring like a lion. Amen? Okay, so here we go. We're going to finish. Look in verse 19. We'll finish with this. Uh, Hillary and uh, Jasmine, why don't you all go back and get ready, and Miss Laura will be there to help you, all right? Verse 19, everybody else, look at it. Let's read it. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you His angels, mighty in strength, who perform His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all you His host, who are serve Him, who serve Him, doing His will. Twenty-two. Bless the Lord, all you works of His, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. After David, in verse nineteen, affirms God's sovereignty one more time, he then calls the angels themselves to worship Him in verse twenty. Because they obey His voice by doing His will. And then He calls for the works of God in verse 22 to come and worship and praise the Lord. And then all of the universe and all of creation is brought back down to one heart. At the end of 22, look what He says. In all the places of His dominion, bless the Lord, O my soul. Can you say that this morning? David calls for creation to praise God. And then he brings it back down very personably, if that's a word, personally to you, my soul, my heart. Let's talk about that a minute. Worship is responding to God in praise. It's heartfelt worship, right? It's heartfelt worship. Give God the sacrifice of praise. The fruit of the lips that offer up thanksgiving. Hebrews chapter 13. Give God the sacrifice of praise. The fruit of your lips. You men that don't sing, shame on you. Shame on you. Sing. You're not singing to the person in front of you, or to your wife next to you, or the people around you. You're singing to Him. You should be busting out as loud as you can. We need robins all over this sanctuary. Amen? Okay. I hope she's watching. Bless you, Robin. Offer him the sacrifice of praise. David is stirring up himself to worship the Lord the same as he is doing for us. Remember, verse 2, remember God's benefits and worship Him accordingly. Worship is also a response of our fear toward God. All of your words, all of your thoughts, all of your deeds are open to the scrutiny of God. None of us want to hear that. None of us like to think and address that. But it's a reality. All my thoughts, all my motives, all my words are scrutinized by God Himself. He records them. 
He knows them. Man, if that doesn't cause you to change your life, I don't know what can. But at the same time, because he knows that, he also knows when I'm praising him in the shower. He also knows when I'm lifting him up on the way to work. He also knows when I hear a moving song in my car and the tears stream down my face because I experience the forgiveness again of Jesus Christ. God knows those things and He hears those things. Amen? Worship Him by responding to Him in that way. Now, don't goof off in worship. It's not trivial to God. We should have fun and we should enjoy it, but we should do it with reverence. Amen? The last thing I want you to see, worship is a response of obedience. You remember the story of Saul in the Old Testament when the uh, prophet Samuel had not arrived and Saul was needing a sacrifice right now, right now. I need a decision from God right now, right now, but there's no priest. So what does Saul do? I'll do it. I'll step out of the king's role and step into the priest's role and I'll perform the sacrifice. And guess what? As soon as he lit the fire, Samuel walks over the hill. And God tells Samuel to tell Saul, what have you done? God says, I desire obedience more than sacrifice. If you come here on Sunday and you worship the Lord with the rest of us on Sunday, and then Monday through Saturday night, you go out there and live like the world, God desires obedience more than your church attendance, more than your sacrifice. You see that? If you are that person that does that, God rejected Saul, and God will reject you. Don't let that happen to you. Live out there just like you live in here. Amen? Good. Worshiping, loving and caring and forgiving. That's what God desires from His people. God wants your praise, but only if it comes from your heart. Today, you've got a decision to make. Where's my praise been originating? Oh, I see somebody holding their hand up. I better hold mine up too. Oh, that's encouraging. I I get you and I'm with that. You know, it's, it's easier to do it in a crowd than, than it would be to do it alone. But what motivated you to do it? It wasn't from here. It was from here. Don't let somebody else's worship change your worship. And don't you raise your hands because everybody else is raising their hands. Amen? It comes from here. It comes from inside. That's true worship. That's spirit and truth worship. God is seeking such to be His worshipers. Today I challenge you, begin worshiping Him because He is a great, good God. There's no more to be said. Let's pray. Father, bless this moment and bless Your church as we contemplate about Your Word and we make a decision right now what we're going to do. I'm going to go down to the altar and I'm going to lay my life before You. I'm going to go down to the altar and and confess my sin. I'm going to stay in my seat and do nothing. I'm going to go out the door because I can't wait to get out of here. You've all made a decision. I pray that you would allow God to help you in that decision. Just like He helped me all those years ago to give my heart to Jesus. I pray you would do the same. In His name we pray. Amen.